Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor at the TLS. Our usual host, Thea Naduzzi, is away this week, so I asked our own Toby Lishjig, fiction and politics editor, to help me out. Hello, Toby. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Lucy. How are you doing? All right, thank you. A little bit warm. Not allowed to complain about it. Sun's no, no we, need to, we need to revel in it. It's beautiful. Exactly. Um, so last week, we talked about recommendations uh, for Independent Bookshop Week, which starts, I think, uh, this Saturday. So, uh, Toby, have you got any? Can I put you on the spot? Have you got any uh, favourite independent Yeah, bookshops? you can. I mean, like most other people during this pandemic, I haven't really strayed out of my postcode very much. So I'm going to stick to the N16 postcode, for that is where I live. And we've actually got two, or at least two, independent bookshops. One is the Stoke Newington Bookshop on Stoke Newton High Street, and it's fantastic, actually. It's really, mm. really well-stocked and really responsive, and the staff know a huge amount, and they will get in books for you at, you know, the ping of an email. So, I, you know, I've really avoided Amazon mm-hmm. for quite a long time now because they'll get them in. And then there's the other sort of less less fancied but equally marvellous Church Street bookshop on Church Street, Stoke Newton Church Street, which is um, mostly second-hand books. Um, it's much smaller, but it's a kind of dusty trove, the likes of which seem to be fading away in our, in our world. But we like a dusty to, trove, don't we? We like a dusty trove, and it's managed, to, it's managed to stay on, and it's certainly survived the pandemic, and they've, you know, they've both, both opened up again a while ago, and, yeah, I heartily recommend both of them. Well, they sound brilliant, and we have had, uh, I've been, we've been canvassing opinion externally and internally, and we've got a lot of wonderful recommendations, which I think we're going to talk about mostly next week in actual Independent Bookshop Week, but they range from certainly throughout the whole country and now I think about it there's we've got one in Germany so if you've got any more if you want to share your recommendations with us do tweet us at the TLS or send an email to letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk nominating your local or most cherished independent bookshop and tell us what you think sets them apart and don't forget to let us know if you're happy for us to name you on the show along with your offering. 
Coming up on this week's show, we have a look into the lost world of coal mining and British labourism, and a landmark discovery from a few hundred years ago, but still a discovery, along with how to write and decode an obituary and what the Buddha's wife might have thought about the man and his life. But first, we're going to talk about perhaps the composer that everybody knows and, more unusually, nearly everybody loves. As one of the books under review calls him, the bone-deep artist, absorbing material wherever he found it for the purpose of putting on a show. And, as our reviewer Paul Griffiths continues, so many shows he put on. Shows for two hands at a keyboard, shows to take over a church and make its ceremony into theatre, shows for a soloist finding partners and supporters within an orchestra, shows for a voice enacting sexual potency or melancholy or goodness of heart or pubertal yearning or omnivalent redemption. Beautiful shows too. So I think you might be there with me now. We are talking about Mozart. Paul Griffiths has written us a beautiful piece and is here now to talk it through with us. Paul, many thanks for joining us. Hello, Lucy. Pleasure to be here. So the first thing you reviewed for us uh, very excitingly was a live new production at the Royal Opera House, wasn't it? What what was it like, first of all, just, just to be there in the Opera House at a live show? And, and what was the production like? Yeah, well, it was amazing to be back after 14 months of the place being dark, at least as far as large-scale operas concerned, and everybody there. As I say in the piece, the, the front of house staff were welcoming you back and thanking you for coming, which doesn't normally happen at the Royal Opera House. <laughs> no, you don't. they don't usually say thank you, do they? <laughs> they don't normally say thank you, no, but it was a spaced audience, obviously about, uh, I would reckon, 25% of the seats were used, uh, every other row and every other seat within, within those rows, so that sort of works out at 25% but applauding as if the house was, was full and um, being given quite a show on, on stage by a wonderful cast of singers. So it was La Clemenza di Tito. Um, what was the sort of the theory behind the production? Uh, well, it was updated. I mean, it was roughly modern times and there was a kind of flicking between a classical facade, which was just largely white, took shadows very nicely. And if you turned it around, it became a kind of high school, I suppose, with um, Vitellia, the baddie of, of this opera, as a mistress, and the prime goodie, Sesto, it's normally sung by a woman these days, as a sort of football star, star of the, of the soccer team. And you might have thought it was a little bit strange, but to, to have a young woman dressed in a, a football shirt and, and, and shorts is actually not so dissimilar from the, uh, the outline of a, of a Roman infantry uniform. So it kind of, it kind of worked. And although it was updated, the, the plot hinges on an assault on the capital, the Roman capital, I should say, not that in Washington DC, but there was no attempt to, um, to, to, to point any contemporary reference, which I think was a very good idea. It worked and um, it was brilliantly sung and that's three quarters of the battle with this piece. And you, and you say the piece, it hinges basically around a, quite a short, a moment of grace, um, Sevilla's aria. Yes, and everybody in this opera is under extreme pressure and there is this moment it, it's nine tenths of the way through the opera when people have been 
singing out their anguish at having to do what they don't want to do. And Servilia, who is the least important of the of the main characters, of the singing characters, comes on and she just has this two-minute aria, which is exquisitely beautiful. And I think Mozart designed it to sort of bring down peace on the characters, on the situation. And um, it certainly worked that way in this, in this performance. And um, as you say in, in the piece, La Clemenza di Tito, the, the opera itself, it has strong links to Prague, doesn't it, as, as Mozart himself did. And uh, the first book you've re reviewed was by Daniel E. Freeman. And that, that tells us about Mozart's special relationship with the city, does it? Yes, I think one of the joys of this book is to point up um, how much Mozart was admired in Prague and Daniel Freeman starts out telling us that a week after Mozart's funeral, he famously had a, a, a very simple burial in, uh, in Vienna. But a week after that, there was a great memorial in Prague with 4,000 people attending a requiem mass in one of the big churches of, of the city. And I think they did so because they loved Mozart's music. And they also remembered his three recent visits, two of them to put on new operas in Prague. It's often forgotten that Don Giovanni was first performed not in Vienna, but in Prague, and then was re revised by Mozart for production in Vienna. And La Clemenza di Tito was written for Prague because it was written for the coronation of the Emperor Leopold II as King of Bohemia. The Austrian emperors in those days seemed to have gone around different cities in German-speaking Europe, getting crowned as, as heads of, of different parts of the empire, King of Bohemia, King of Hungary, and all the rest of it. And was it Prague, this is perhaps one of the sort of myths that I was going to talk about later, was it Prague that there's the story about you couldn't go around there without someone, you couldn't walk down, down the street without someone whistling something from Marriage of Figaro or Don Giovanni and people in the market and just everywhere? Yes, and that, that is from, from one of uh, Mozart's lovely letters where he reports back to a friend in, in Vienna that he's, he's been invited to Prague because they're nuts about the marriage of Figaro and everywhere he goes, somebody is playing it on a clarinet somewhere or there's a, there's a keyboard player on the street. It was, it was the popular music at the time and not bad popular music to have. <laughs> yes. So that, that was why he wrote, he wrote Don Giovanni for Prague because they were absolutely nuts about marriage of Figaro, which is his first collaboration with Lorenzo de Ponte and they said okay get together again and let's have another one. And um, Freeman's book is is um, kind of about the the myths and the legends is it rather than a kind of in-depth biography or historical research anything like that? Yes I mean he's he's very inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to rather dubious sources like there's this chap Alfred Meissner who was writing way, 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 almost a century later, 1870s, nominally basing what he wrote on notes left by his grandfather who had lived in Prague, but he never showed anybody those notes uh, or left them to any library. And I mean, we have absolutely no evidence that they existed. Uh, he may just have been making it up from, from hearsay. And, and a lot of what he says is clearly not possibly right because he gives long verbatim dialogues. And Daniel Freeman, while acknowledging that this is 
rather dubious material, does put a lot of that in. And okay, it, it's fun to read. A lot of the, the real history is in there too. He doesn't really try to set himself up as a critic of, of opera in any way, but the circumstances of the productions are there and a lot of the legend around them is uh, is also there. Um, and so then the other book that you wrote about was Jan Swafford's biography, which is a, a major work, isn't it? Um, as all his biographies have been. What's the kind of central organising theme? Yeah, I mean, one should say that Jan Swafford is a US composer and, and teacher, but he's surely going to go down in, in history as the person who wrote major biographies First of Brahms, then Beethoven, and now Mozart. So, um, yes, it's a very solid biography. It doesn't necessarily include a lot of new information, but it gathers together everything that, that is known about Mozart currently. And it has a very persuasive line about him. I mean, John Spofford says, I think just straight out, Mozart was a happy man. It's, it's a picture of a happy life. There's not much suffering here. There's not much penury. It's a man who's successful, who knows he's successful, who loves people, loves being with people, loves his wife, loves his friends, and um, has a, a happy life, as, as Jan Spofford you say that he 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 gives a sense of uh, not just of him being a, a happy man. So any any there's no sort of tortured genius going on here, um, but he's got a sense of him treating life almost as uh, as playing a game with a sense of detachment and and that if the game was a masquerade, he's Harlequin within that. Does that does that feel right to you? It does feel very right. It does it does, and it's as Jan Spofford points out, we're pre-romantic era here, composers don't see it as their job to express their personal pains and anguishes. I mean, Mozart expresses all kinds of things, from pain to awe and delight and sheer joy uh, and abounding love. Um, but he, he doesn't do so as a subjective being. I and mean, th those are characteristics of the, of the music. And it was perfectly possible for him to write a joyous piece at, at, at a time when he might have had some doubts about and problems with things. And conversely, to write a, an anguished piece when he was blissfully happy. Those were things that were coming out of, out of the music. There's also that sense, isn't there, that he can... Um, I'm always surprised by the music, especially in Cosi. I'm thinking about Cosi, Fantute, when um, th there's a lot of deception going on. But he can give the most beautiful pieces to people who are who are conning other people left, right, and center. <laughs> like when the sisters and Don Alfonso are saying goodbye to the soldiers, and Don Alfonso knows that the whole thing is a sham, and the sisters are, not, are perhaps overreacting anyway, and they sing "Suave si el vento," which is this beautiful, beautiful piece. But actually, nobody really means it on that level, do they? No. Well, there are various levels on which they do mean it and don't mean it, and I think that's true to life, isn't it? I mean, so many relationships are not very clear. I mean, they, they, they can be one thing one day and one thing another, or they can be two or three different things at the, at the same time. But I mean, going back to what we were saying about the masquerade, yes, Mozart is somebody who was 
perfectly capable of, of putting a mask on, who enjoyed Masquerade, who enjoyed actually taking on the personality of Harlequin. And it's it's not too much of a stretch to see him as, as doing that in life. And in Cozy, as you said, yes, the boys are hoodwinking the girls, but the, the girls are play acting at some in some ways and enjoying the feelings of desire or of depression or of anger. There are many ways in which people are deluding themselves as well as deluding others in that piece. But they, yeah, but they do it to the most extraordinary music. To, to, to <laughs> music, yes. Maybe the most the most beautiful music in, in, in any Mozart opera. Um, and he wasn't, um, you say this, and Swafford says this, he wasn't a revolutionary composer in the sense of inventing new forms or feeling that he had to push boundaries, was he? He sort of didn't need to break the conventions. Swafford says he took what the world offered him, digested it and gave it back in his own voice. Yeah, in his own voice, crucially. I mean, yes, it, he, he adhered to the conventions, his forms are normally in, in one of the standard forms of the period, but the way he handles it and the, the way he can move outside what you expect into a completely strange and wonderful territory is, is unique to him. There's, there's, there is nothing else like it in that period, I suppose, in Haydn to some extent, but Haydn's a totally different composer. The book sounds very interesting on the um, Salieri-Mozart relationship. I mean, he's um, Swafford says that he, he describes Salieri as having an orchestral imagination at least the equal of Mozart's, maybe beyond, which I thought was very intriguing. Um, do, do you, is that something you buy? I can't really. I mean, um, I, I don't know enough Salieri to appreciate Salieri as an orchestral composer. Obviously, Jan Swafford does, but that, that's... That's one of the rare things in this book that uh, makes you say, what? Should, should we know Salieri a bit better? Because, I mean, I, you know, I'm coming to this as a as complete amateur. I, I know really nothing about Salieri apart from the kind of biographical element of the relationship. And, you know, do, do people listen to him um, much now? Largely, thanks, I'm sure, to the, to the Peter Schaffer play, Salieri's music has been revived a lot in the last 30, 40 years, and there are recordings of several of his operas, and you can, there are video recordings on YouTube of several of his operas, so the, the material is out there in a way that it, it just wasn't before Peter Schaffer's play came along. I don't know if anyone, I don't know anyone who could hum you a Salieri tune, though, <laughs> he hasn't quite... But he was very popular. <laughs> And uh, Swafford points out that his operas were performed more often than Mozart's. That's not only true of, of Salieri, it's true of other composers of that period, Cimarosa, Paisiello, and Fossi, who's virtually forgotten name. They, they all were more performed than Mozart. And there is a reason for that. Their, their music is simpler, it's froth. And, um, that went down very well. It's interesting when you when you're mentioning the the Peter Schaffer play and the film because there's lots of the lots of the Mozart stories that we might know. You quote the um, was it Joseph II saying too many notes. Lots of lots of them can't be substantiated, but a couple of them, like the apparently as Swafford says, the jealousy of of Salieri and also Mozart's sort of fairly astounding facility. They, they are more or less true, aren't they? Well, the jealousy, and Swafford is a little bit 
of two minds about Salio's jealousy. Why why should he be jealous when he was so much more more successful? And Swafford goes gives us a long list of ways in which he he was more successful, and then ends up saying, "But human life makes no sense." And um, I like that, and I I think Mozart was very much of of, of approved of that sentiment that uh, that life doesn't make any sense. Maybe that's the big lesson of Cosi van Tutte. Yeah, maybe. But also, is I mean, in the in the Schaffer play, Salieri is jealous because he knows how good Mozart is, doesn't he? And he knows yes. he can't do it. I mean, that's a very nice thing in the in the play that Salieri is is really uniquely equipped, uniquely able to realize just how great this music is. Um, I mean, there's that wonderful scene where he hears this uh, wind serenade and is just struck dumb by this oboe melody, as, as any of us might be. But for other people in the play, this is this is entertainment, and and they don't take it any more seriously. He's the one who sees Mozart's importance, Mozart's gift. Um, but I don't think there's any evidence for that. I mean, it does make wonderful drama and it makes a wonderful dramatic character. But, and also his his amazing facility. But I suppose then that came, he had to work very hard, didn't he, from when he was a child. So that w- might account for that as well. Yeah, well, Leopold Mozart comes in for quite some stick in, in Jan Swafford's book, probably not altogether um, unreasonably. But Leopold did take this, he recognized, he also, of course, recognized Mozart's gift. And he made it his business to take this lad around Europe so that he heard music making in London, in Milan, in Florence, in Paris, all over the place uh, in, in, in Western Europe, and met great composers of the time, J.C. Bach in London, um, his major Italian contemporaries in, in Italy, and was exposed to, to, to the music and, and was copying the music. So he, he had a, a musical culture, which was absolutely unique. And he could draw on, on what he'd heard of, of orchestras all over, all over Europe, all over Western Europe anyway. So yeah, some, some of it true, some of it not, but all the, the beauty all very much obviously there. Um, Paul, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Still to come on the show, the decline and fall of labourism in Britain, new evidence that two of England's greatest philosophers were in dialogue with each other, deciphering obituary codes and the Buddha's wife. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Watching the end of uh, One Night in Miami, I was I was reminded of the end of a play called uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois by Robert E. Sherwood which ends with Lincoln having won the uh, 1860 presidential election and, and heading off to Washington. And people are in tears at the end of that story because they know what's coming, you know, what's coming is civil war and, and Lincoln's assassination.
I think those these those labels I just I, I they all really annoy me actually I find them fantastically unhelpful because they're they're either used to punch up or punch down and really it just means that a lot of people enjoyed reading the book well then Hilary Mantel is middle brown so is Shakespeare and so is Ulysses a lot of people have enjoyed Ulysses actually that you probably can't make that case I need yeah. I mean, that you... point <laughs> remember when I was a student, not that we called ourselves students, this is such a long time ago, looking up and noticing that virtually every road to publication, because I was already writing poems myself at that stage, had Anthony Thwaites standing on it somewhere or other. In other words, he was absolutely the person who'd sort of managed to install himself as the person who was somehow kind of overseeing what was going on in English poetry. One of the things that struck me is that with all the attention focused, quite rightly in fact, on the recent troubles in the North, it is quite easy to overlook earlier conflicts which ravaged the whole of Ireland, causing what Sean O'Casey amusingly called a terrible state of chassis. Though in truth, there is nothing amusing about any of them. The Nancy Mitford that we had been talking about a couple of weeks ago, Haywood Hill, I think must be the grandest independent bookshop, don't you think? Mm. I'm pretty sure it's got a warrant from the Queen. <laughs> Nancy Mitford worked there while she was writing The Pursuit of Love. Did she? Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Because mm. th there's the bit in The Pursuit of Love where she's running a bookshop and they all come in and chat. And I think basically that's that's also oh, right. So it's method, method it is. <laughs> I think it was a bit. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we turn to coal mines, let's have a look at what's in the rest of the paper this week. Um, Toby, there's a there's a, a, a revelation, isn't there? As I say, a revelation of a few hundred years old, but a, a discovery nevertheless about um, two of our great philosophers. Yeah, well, it's a you know, it's a recent you know, it's a very very recent discovery of something quite old, and it's I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary story. This so. Um, Felix Waldman, uh, the, the philosopher and historian, has found um, a written memoir by James Tyrell, who was apparently the best friend of John Locke. He found this, this written memoir um, in the papers of a, of a former historian of the Royal Society called Thomas Birch. And it's basically a trashing of Locke. So James Tyrell, supposedly a friend, you know, with friends like these, writes of Locke, he was avaricious, vain, envious, and reserved to excess. He lost his temper with great ease. Being full of the good opinion that he had of himself, Locke esteemed only his own work and the people who praised him. And it goes on. So it's really, you know, it's re- really quite rancorous. I think it was also, wasn't it? Weren't they looking for uh, testimonials after he died and they couldn't use it? That's right, yeah. isn't it? And he also yeah. says he wasn't interested in science or erudition, which seems surprising. Absolutely, yeah. He, he, no, he not just not, he, he despised science Oh, yes, and that's right, yeah. <laughs> and, Actively disliked them. And then actually the two, the two worst bits for, for Locke was that... Um, yeah, it accused him of plagiarism. So the book that he wrote about money, uh, and that book is Locke's publications on the interest rate and the recoinage uh, in the in the late 17th century, is a copy of another, says James Tyrell. We don't know what the other is. And then the the other really exciting thing um, for you know for, for students and 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 scholars uh, of Locke is that there is proof that he was uh, a reader of Leviathan. Now, this is really significant because it's always been suspected that um, Locke uh, read Hobbes and read Leviathan, but he's never directly referred to it in his writings. And this seems to confirm that he was not just a reader of Leviathan, but a Leviathan obsessive. Um, yes, a, a, that's a, what it said, isn't yeah. it? That he, he he was never far from a copy. Yeah, he almost always had Leviathan on his table and recommended the reading to his friends. Um, so, I mean, it's I, I think... 
you know, I'm not a Lux scholar, um, but I, I can see that this is hugely significant. And Warburton does a, you know, he does a good analysis of the significance of this and what it means. And people have, you know, talked about Locke in relation to Hobbes for hundreds of years and whether or not he read Leviathan and, you know, what his understanding of it might be. And this really will move scholarship on in a, in a big way. In fact, I, I was actually... I was party to the pitch when this when this piece came in and and Wardman says a crass way to com- to convey the importance of this discovery is to compare it to finding a completely unknown memoir of Shakespeare's closest friend recounting Shakespeare's plagiarism and other objectionable conduct and I, I'm not sure if it's quite in the same category but it certainly seems pretty close yeah and he does say that it will it will influence um, thinking about about Locke now and about his work, and and it will have it will have a, a sort of huge impact yeah, it afterwards. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's re- it's really really exciting. There's going to be you know this is not the this is the first you will have heard of it, um, uh, but it's not the last you will hear of it. Mm, yeah, really really significant find. Um, there's another piece in the paper that I wanted to talk about um, about obituaries. Yes, which is a fun piece by DJ Taylor talking about how you write them, how you read them, and what the codes are. Um, and there's some lovely... This is very funny about the codes. Yeah, I, there's some lovely ones. I've got them here. There's, this one, I think I do know, no stranger to the grape, which means basically <laughs> just means a drunk. So this is what when you read someone's obituary, because you're obviously, you know, Neil Nissy Bonham, you don't want to be horrible about people. Um, but there are certain codes which mean certain things. He says, when recounting some flaring instance of alcoholic bad behaviour, you might say, X had perhaps taken a glass of wine. (laughs) Um, One of my favourites, I think, is, enjoyed a variegated social life, which means light-minded boulevardier, which sounds like a brilliant thing to be. Yeah, no respecter of reputations. <laughs> he was really horrible. <laughs> well, or actually, that's it says also literary critic, so watch out. Oh, yes. That means, yeah, or, or it just means rude. Uh, flamboyant, which means irksome scene stealer. Yep, and larger than life, tedious show-off. <laughs> and then he also he looks back, you know, to, to the days when, um, you know, you, people didn't necessarily want to... Um, talk about uh, people being homosexual or gay in life when when there were sort of more taboos on that. Although weirdly, we're actually talking about the 90s when it was it was you know it wasn't it wasn't that taboo, but it, I suppose it still was um, in some areas. And you've got the kind of the classic he was unmarried, but then we've got Rupert Hart Davis yeah. trying to give an idea of his friend Hugh Walpole's sexual adventures, um, who settled for Turkish baths offered opportunities for informal social contacts. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What a way of, uh, yeah, what a way of putting it. Um, Moving seamlessly on, the other thing that caught my eye, of course, lots of great things in the paper this week, but this one jumped out at me, is it was a piece about the Buddha's wife. Did you see that piece? Yes, I did. Um, I mean, it was extraordinarily fascinating to me. I know almost nothing about Buddhism and the Buddha um, and Siddhartha, apart from, you know, Hermann Hesse. Um, And it's, so it's this, it's a review of this, it's called a hagiographic fiction. So it's basically a novel. Yes. Sort of a that, kind of it's novel. It's important and to a say theology. that at the start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, but having said that, written by a professor of religious studies who specialises in Buddhism and who has anchored many of the events within historical research, kind of thing. So it's a really interesting mix, isn't it? Precisely. And it's about, so it's sort of, it's about the Buddha, but sort of partly, or at least, at least partly from the point of view of his wife, Yasodhara. And I mean, I, I, maybe many listeners do know this, but I'm simply not aware of this. So the, the, 
person who became Buddha, Siddhartha, abandoned his wife and or renounced because you have to renounce renounced. the things of the world. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. But on but on on the birth of uh, his child, so uh, he renounced them. I think just as the baby was born, and uh, it says here, she, you know, the, the, the uh, Yasodhara emerges from the painful haze of childbirth to learn that her husband has left her, rendering the togetherness that defined her life. Um, so it's also about her own pronunciation, you know, her own having to deal with this kind of abandonment. And, and it was just, yeah, I, I, I just wasn't really aware of that side of the Buddha story. And it's very, very interesting. Yeah, really interesting, I thought. And it's not, it's not, um, it doesn't seem to be, it's not sort of trying to write, it's not trying to say I wasn't that awful. It's not making judgments about it. It's saying there's a thing that happened. Let's look at it from another angle. It, it, it's not, um, as I say, it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem to be moralistic. It seems to be very, just very thoughtful. And, and she not only has to deal with being renounced, but then she does her own renunciation, doesn't she? Because their son, after a while, leaves her to go off and follow his father. So she sort of has to renounce him. She has to let him go. If she loves him and wants to let him do what he wants, she has to let him go because she won't see him again. So it's sort of it's sort of as if renunci- renunciation was visited upon her, but then at the same time she can either fight it or embrace renunciation. So it's sort of, and she seems to have done the latter. Um, and now in another seamless segue, Toby, you want to talk to us about coal mining, don't you? Yes, absolutely. The Buddha was um, very into coal mining until he had to renounce it. Um, <laughs> so that's why we are making that link. The Industrial Revolution was powered by coal, and for many decades, Britain was the global leader in the field. It dug it up, burnt it, and sent it round the globe for others to do the same. Before 1939, the British mining industry was not national but hemispheric, writes the historian David Edgerton in his piece on the subject in this week's paper. The country was not only the biggest per capita producer of the stuff, but the largest absolute exporter of energy in the world. British coal mining went hand in hand with British labourism, and the slow decline of one meant the slow decline of the other. But only in the past three decades has the industry really collapsed, a disintegration mirrored by a similar collapse of the Labour Party's so-called Red Wall in the north of England, which has so fundamentally realigned British politics. But is the link between the two as simple as it seems? And what can we learn about the broader social and political effects of the demise of this once thriving industry? David Edgerton has reviewed The Shadow of the Mine, Coal and the End of Industrial Britain by Hugh Bainan and Ray Hudson, and he joins me on the line now to discuss. Hello, David. Hello. Um, it's, it's a really fascinating piece, uh, and it sounds like a fascinating book. You describe it as a, as a study of the lost world of British labourism. Um, and I just wondered if we could start off by talking about what, what exactly you mean by labourism itself in this context. Well, labourism was a term used by some left intellectuals to discuss the particularities of the British Socialist um, Labour Party tradition. And I suppose the essence of it is the, the combination of a semi-socialist party with a strong organized labor movement. After all, the Labour Party was created by trade unions and it was created to put trade union officials into the, into the House of Commons. And that's profoundly marked its, uh, its, its history, its, uh, its politics, uh, indeed down to the present day. Um, there is, I think, a distinctive laborism uh, at play within labor. 
And, and the coal mining industry was really a kind of sort of big central node of, of these unions. Would you say that's fair to say? Yes, it was. I mean, the, the coal mining industry was uh, um, quite strongly unionised and found it very important to have uh, trade unionists in the House of Commons. I mean, first as Lib Lab uh, MPs associated with the Liberal Party, and then uh, from 1910 uh, onwards as Labour MPs. And the reason for this was that they were, as a, as, as a union, as unions and plural uh, back then, very interested in having state regulation of the mines. Uh, to keep women out, to keep children out, uh, to regulate the hours of uh, work, to regulate methods of, uh, of payment. So, that, so it's the involvement of the, of the industry with the, with the state that's central to the, to the politics of, of the miners. And, and so the book itself, The Shadow of the Mine, the, the book itself, what exactly is its scope? I mean, does it kind of start off with this kind of earlier history of the Labour Party or is it, is it more centrally focused on the kind of the past 30 or 40 years? Well, it, it's really focused um, on the last 30 or, or 40 years, but it looks, uh, looks back um, uh, really to the, to the post-war years. That goes, goes a bit further back as, as well. And it focuses on two particular coal mining areas. And it, it's, it's, um, it's one of the, those, those really good books about the mining industry and mining trade unions that recognises that uh, local traditions are very different uh, in different areas. Uh, and the book focuses on the on the South Wales area, uh, the area of the Fed was the, the Federation was the was the union for that uh, area, and the um, the Durham Coalfield, where the Durham Miners Association was the was the union. Um, the the latter uh, sort of long been associated with the the right of the trade union movement and the Labour Party, and the uh, the South Walian miners with the with the left and, and are in Bevan would be an exemplary figure there. Picking up on that, David, they, I mean, we can still see those traditions pretty strongly today, can't we? I mean, that's uh, that's that's how the Red Wall and the collapse of the so-called Red Wall happened and, and that support is still relatively strong in Wales for the Labour Party. Well, yes, it, 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 uh, it, it, it has uh, remained relatively strong, um, although large parts of, uh, of South Wales in particular, I mean, voted for the leave. Uh, I don't myself like the, the term the, the Red Wall. It's it's uh, it's an invention um, by a, a, a conservative uh, thinker. Um, it, it's not something the Labour Party has developed as an idea, but it's one that's it's most certainly taken up. Um, and it's a very curious idea because if we go back to the 1950s, the um, the Labour right essentially argued that. Labour needed to move away from the trade union movement, from the working class, the organised working class, because um, society was becoming more bourgeois, essentially. So they're, they're essentially arguing that Labour had to move to the right and away from the, from, from, from the working class. Uh, in, the, in the recent past, uh, the Labour right has, has argued a very different thesis, which was that uh, Labour should move towards uh, the working class, and the working class was um, was deeply, deeply conservative, uh, and it was the, um, uh, uh, the bourgeois factions, if you like, that, uh, that, uh, that were the progressive ones, and indeed um, uh, the problem for Labour. There, there was certainly a sense of New Labour and Blair's New Labour kind of neglecting that area, though, would you say, and particularly, particularly in the North, rather than so much in South Wales. I mean, you, you talk a little bit about the... Um, the Durham Miners Gala, which is this important annual event, which 
I think Kinnock, you say, didn't go to sort of stock. You know, he didn't go to it. Blair didn't go to it. Brown didn't go to it. And then, for the first time in a long time, you've got Miliband and Corbyn went to it. And do you do you think this was very symbolically important? I, I think it is. And the reason that um, that Neil Kinnock didn't go was that he really wasn't very supportive of the miners' strike, the great miners' strike of 1984-85, and essentially he would not have been welcome. Um, it's interesting that that uh, later leaders who were also invited. Um, uh, chose not to go. Um, and I think certainly New Labour wanted to disassociate itself from the trade union movement. Um, it uh, wanted to see itself as a progressive party. It was New Labour, not uh, not Labour. It saw itself in a, in a great progressive tradition and uh, aimed indeed to, to get um, its funds from membership and from private donors rather than from the, the trade unions. So there's a very, there's a very clear sense in which uh, I mean, Labour is, is, is distinguishing itself from the trade union movement. I mean, in relation to the to the mining areas, yes, I mean, in, uh, the new Labour idea was that we had entered into a new world, a globalised world, a world in which new technologies were central. Mining uh, uh, certainly didn't, didn't um, come into the story of the, the conception of Labour the new Labour had of uh, what a modern economy looked like. So yes, these areas were, well, neglected isn't quite right. I mean, there were, there were attempts uh, through development agencies, um, through, through um, particular kinds of investment to revitalize and modernize these, uh, these areas. But uh, as the book shows rather wonderfully, um, essentially the best that these areas got was um, foreign manufacturers uh, looking for cheap labour. I mean, we're choosing between investing in Eastern Europe um, or in uh, or in these mining areas. And there's a telling um, point, I think, which is often uh, ignored, but, but um, Bain and Hudson bring out, and, and, and that is that the decline of the coal industry is um, not wholly due to the lack of demand for coal. What happened from, especially from around 1990 onwards, was that British coal was being replaced by coal imports. And uh, under New Labour, uh, for the first time, coal imports were greater than British domestic production. So British power stations were running essentially on imported coal, on Russian coal, on Polish coal, on uh, Colombian coal. It's interesting um, that I think that the general narrative you might have thought was that the closing of the mines and the miners' strike in 1984-85 was, was, was the beginning of the end, but or, or you know, was catastrophic for them. Um, but it wasn't 1984-85 that did it necessarily. No, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the key decisions are, um, are, are really the decisions of the 1990s, essentially, to, uh, to import coal. I mean, they were implicit in the 80s, policies, but they, they, they really come into play in the, in the 90s. And it's a hugely important decision. We don't care where our coal comes from. Uh, I mean, that, that would have been a position unthinkable in the 1940s, 50s or, 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 or 60s, especially for the Labour Party. It would, have, of course, have insisted that British coal be used where coal was, uh, was needed. Well, and you can see that yeah, it may, even coals to Newcastle, even Jig. Old expression, isn't there? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely, it is literally calls to Newcastle. Literally, uh, the, so the, 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 
in fact, coal exporting ports became coal importing ports. And do you see corollaries in other declining and declined industries in the UK today? I was, I don't know, I was thinking, for example, the sort of the shipyards in Scotland and, and, and you know, sort of the impact of that on Labour politics, regardless of, you know, whether it was the Conservatives or, or, or Labour who presided over that decline. Yes, that's right. It's um, the coal case is, is a particular one, given the nature of the coal industry, essentially a rural industry or semi-rural industry rather than an urban one. But uh, deindustrialization has been a, a phenomenon right across the country. It's not just in the north, actually. It's also, it's also in London, uh, various parts of the south of England as well. But the, the political consequences have been um, similar in, in some places. And perhaps the most striking example that's not usually discussed in this context is that of Scotland. Uh, Labour was a hugely important and many dominant part of the politics of, of Scotland. It ceases to be with the rise of the, uh, of the SNP. And it's very interesting that in, in the Scottish case, and there is a lot of deindustrialization in, in, uh, in Scotland, you have the working class and the former working class um, you know, voting for essentially the Social Democratic Party, and indeed, of course, voting to remain in the, in the EU. So again, politics is really important uh, to the story, it seems to me. Uh, the, the whole idea that left behind Britain voted leave and Tory for some uh, deep historical reason seems to me to be quite wrong. And in fact, and it's, it's, it's wrong to, to associate to either the leave or the Tory vote with these areas. The, the, the great bulk of the Tory vote, the great bulk of the, of the, of the leave vote was amongst uh, wealthier people in wealthy parts of the country. Do you think that Labour can rebuild itself in these areas, you know, in these specifically the coal mining areas in, in the north. Do you see hope for that, or is that too too difficult a question to even contemplate? Oh yes, I mean, Labour has rebuilt itself uh, in the past. It rebuilt itself in a in a particular way as uh, New Labour. Uh, so there's every possibility of uh, doing it again. But I think what Labour needs is a distinct uh, view of the country and and where it should uh, should go as it had in 1997 and in, in 2017. I, I don't think the future lies in believing uh, stories by political enemies about, about the Red Wall. The, the 2017 case is really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you talk about how Corbyn's been routinely blamed for the collapse of, of Labour support um, in the North, and, and yet he did very well in 2017. He obviously did a lot less well in 2019. I mean, to, to, to what extent then was the sort of the split Tory Brexit vote the reason for his success, or actually, do you think there was something more intrinsic to the appeal of Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 that actually got him those votes? Yes, I, I mean, the, 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 the share of the vote is the, is, is the key index, I think. Uh, um, and that's around 40% in, in, in 2017, which is an astonishingly good uh, result. Um, why was Labour successful? I think it had a, it had a message. It attracted um, young people, fundamentally. And it, it did uh, uh, poorly amongst uh, uh, older people, for sure. And those older people are more likely to turn out to, to vote. But it certainly uh, mobilised um, a large swathe of opinion, despite the deep hostility of the media um, uh, towards it, and indeed the deep hostility of uh, much of the Parliamentary Labour Party uh, as well. So I, I think it was a very interesting and important um, phenomenon. Um, 
how, how does the, the book conclude then? How, what, what, is, what does Shadow of the Mind leave us with? Are there any kind of insights into to the future or what's, what's its kind of parting shot? Its parting shot, I suppose, is that it's simply that these mining areas have um, been betrayed. Um, uh, so it's a fairly bleak prospect that the authors uh, give us. Um, where they are a bit more positive is in the uh, development of political organization. And uh, a nice example that they, 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 they talk about is the recreated Durham Miners Gala. Um, there, is, there is no mining industry anymore, but the, 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 the gala has been uh, rejuvenated as a political and, and cultural uh, festival. I mean, one which I guess would look uh, much more like our image of the supposed uh, kind of uh, metropolitan urban festivals rather than a, rather than a northern so-called Red War one. But they, they certainly see it as a, as a sign of uh, a possibility and of, uh, and of hope. And is that, is it mostly, do they sort of see that as kind of cross-generational or is that mostly younger people do, you, do, do they feel is kind of driving that, that new sense of identity and, and togetherness? Um, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's probably for the sequel then. <laughs> um, well, I think that's probably all we've got time for. But yeah, perhaps Shadow of the Mind 2 will, um, will, will bring us up, uh, up to date on that. Um, it's been really great talking to you, David. Thanks so much for your time. time for this week our thanks go to paul griffiths and david edgerton thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from toby lishtig and from me goodbye imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.